Hello and welcome to Uncle Dad Talks, the Halloween special. I am Uncle Dad, and with me is my beloved new co-host, Mike Hampton. Mike Hampton, say hello. Hello, how's everyone doing out there today? Awesome. Well, I don't know why he's doing a sexy voice, but he is. But before we get well, any further into that, let me go ahead and introduce that song. That song you just heard was Scarecrow by Young Lean. And Mike, tell my tell our listeners where they can get that song. And you can find it on Soundstripe.com. Soundstripe.com. That is correct. Uh, our weekly sponsors, of course. We love them here because we get to introduce people to a bunch of music by a bunch of young artists. No pun intended. It's a great format. Mike, you are also a musician. What do you think about having the access to grabbing music like that and then putting your own lyrics on them? Well, I think it's wonderful, especially when I do it, my lyrics in a voice like this. The quality is impeccable. <laughs> it sure is. And the best part of uh, our, our partnership is that you can save 10% off your first month subscription, which is uh, used by using promo code Uncle Dad Talks 10 10% off a, uh, a monthly subscription. That basically is like a free song you're getting. Uh, the cool thing is, though, let's say you don't want to do a monthly subscription. You can actually now get songs individually for as low as like $2, which is pretty cool. Because sometimes if you don't want to pay monthly, you can just get that one song you want, you know, lay your lyrics down or, you know, put it in your movie, whatever you're doing. It's a great thing for all content creators. I can't, I can't thank them enough, and I can't stress how great this product is. Mike, you're new to the show. I'm sure you heard us talk about Soundstripe a lot. What do you think about Soundstripe? I think the fact that you can now get a, an instrumental or a beat for $2 compared to thousands of dollars yeah. when people were making beats years ago is pretty incredible. So your budget for making an album is, is way, can go way down. It's wonderful. Awesome. All right, folks, let's go ahead and start the show. Now let's introduce our guest, but I'm not going to introduce him. Our new co-host, Mike, is going to introduce him. Mike, I think that just makes the most sense. What do you think? I mean, why not? Let's do it. Yeah. On this show, I just spring things on people. So as you should know that about now, right, Mike? <laughs> yes. He's great at putting people on the spot right Oh, there. hell yes. So, hell yes. Just uh, watch out, Dan. Yeah, Sorry to do out. that to you. Why'd you say his name? You didn't introduce him yet. <laughs> well, so I'm, right, Mike, I'm excited to introduce our, our new special guest to the Uncle Dad Talks and He's a friend of mine. He's also a five-time Eisner nominee. Whoa. My good friend, uh, Dan Brereton. Hey, guys. Whoa. Thanks for having me on. I've uh, been doing a lot of these chats and podcasts lately, and they've been a lot of fun. So I'm really looking forward to uh, the next six hours on the on the podcast with you guys. All right. Well, we definitely don't have six hours, but <laughs> we'll shrink that down to an hour. <laughs> I really was kidding when I said six hours. So, oh, okay. <laughs> no worries. But what I do plan on doing a me and Mike just found this out the other day is that I want to do a uh, break the world record for the longest podcast in one episode. So I will have you on when we do that. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh. Like the, like it'll be like the telethon. Yeah, it'll be a straight nonstop telethon. Exactly. Yeah. Podcastathon. Yeah. A podcastathon. Exactly. Yeah. The wow. record is almost seven or seven days, almost uh, seventy-two hours. So we're oh. gonna we're we're gonna break it by doing seventy-three. Hey, why okay. not go for eighty? Uh, go for <laughs> you know a uh, ten-day work week. <laughs> What's funny is, could you imagine if we did that? That would just be insane. And Mike has already hesitated about doing the 72 hours. So, <laughs> Yeah, this is, again, is something that he sprung on me right here on the show. I had no idea. <laughs> That's excessive. That's three days, right? So 
three days plus an extra hour of just incoherent babbling. In the 73rd hour, you're drooling. Oh, yeah, yeah. But hey, if you make it that far, that's all that matters. All right. I don't want to see how You're a meth addict. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I'm wondering right. how it's going to go. <laughs> all right, guys. D uh, Dan, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I've always heard nothing but great things about you. Obviously, I know your work. Uh, Nocturnals is one of the greatest, I think, one of the greatest comic book series to be made. Uh, I, I have to tell you, I, I doubt you remember this, and that's totally fine. You and I actually did meet one time a long long time ago which was actually funny because it was the first day i met mike in my whole entire life um, huh. yeah it was a, it was a convention in uh, sacramento and at that convention before i met you i actually met uh, mike for the very first time and you were you were great uh, you signed my i ha actually still have it it's an art i have to go find it but it's a lithograph that you did for the nocturnals and you had like so many left and it was one of my favorite pieces i own so thank oh, you cool for that. okay so it must kinda... have been a long time how long ago was that that must have been a while ago oh yeah i know i've known mike since i was 16 i'm not 31 so yeah, oh my goodness time. basically yeah that, that was like 2000 or something well i don't know about that <laughs> uh but yeah uh mike i'm gonna my math is so good <laughs> no, i think no it was worries. about two, 2006 is probably when when this happened yeah yeah that which sounds I, right. Yeah, yeah, which does sound about right, yeah. So, Mike, uh, I'll let you kick it off uh, with the experience here. Go ahead. We really just kind of want to get to know you. As, one of the things that separates us a lot is that we like to get people's stories on a very, like, deep level, as much as you're willing to, to express, of course. I, yeah, so I want to have Mike start it off. Uh, he can ask the first question, then I'll kind of hop in here and there. But thank you again, Dan. And, Mike, go ahead. Yeah, so basically, Dan, we thought uh, October would be a great month to have you on being that, you know, so much of your artwork is kind of centered around like Halloween and, and the colors of fall and, and kind of a very Octoberish feeling very specifically with Nocturnals, which is, you know, your own creation. But let me just say really quick, I was 14 when I was first coming across Dan's art. So this was probably, you know, 45 years ago. And <laughs> Um, <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, I was collecting Marvel trading cards, and it was the Marvel masterpieces in '93 and the the Ultra X Men Fleer cards in '94 that you had done some artwork on, and I was at a friend of mine's was a friend that we both have, Steve, and I was looking at the cards with his son David, and. David goes, yeah, my dad knows that guy. And I go, whoa, no way. <laughs> like the, the thought that I knew someone who knew someone that did that at, when I was 14 was just, it was really exciting. So, wow. Wow. Yeah. I, um, I, I don't have bragging rights to a lot of things. And I'm not, it's not like I'm a big braggy type guy, but that X-Men trading card set, when they, when they came to me to do card illustrations for it, they said, you can do as many as you can get done in a month. I think it was the month of October or November or something like that. And I did a total of 15 cards for the set. I beat out the person who had the second most cards was Bill Sienkiewicz. So I beat him out by one card to have the most cards in that set. So that was pretty cool. And I don't think I can say that about it much of anything else that was a collaborative type of thing. Um, but that was a lot of fun. And that introduced me to the world of here are you know, 45 cards for you to sign, please. Oh, not even please, just put them down in front of me and then have me sign them in a comic shop and then have people in line saying, is your hand getting tired? <laughs> yeah, that never gets old. <laughs> a different group of fans than the ones that come up and that are courteous and, and warm. 
<laughs> these guys are just like, I can't wait to flip these, I guess. I don't know. But it was still fun. I still get, you know, people coming up to me and mentioning those and stuff like that. So That's pretty cool. I actually wasn't aware that uh, you did uh, those cards. I mean, that was when those came out, I was only like, God, what, six? <laughs> so Yeah, I think my – did that come out? Did those come out in 92 or 94? 94? I think 94. So they, they came out like around the same time Hunter was born. Or I was doing them at the same time Hunter was born around there. Wow. Yeah, and Hunter's 26 now, or almost 27. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. So, uh, Dan, if you can, can you tell us where, Mike may already know this, but can you tell us where it all starts, like where the art journey of yours starts? I can go back pretty far when it comes to that. Um, Okay. I really feel like, you know, as, as far as what Mike was also mentioning about Halloween and October and fall and and all that kind of stuff. It starts very early for me because I remember I have, uh, I have memories of my first Halloween where I was almost two. So I was a month shy of two years old. And I know some people will tell you, Oh, I remember what it was like to be in the, in the crib. It's not so much that I think is a trauma of the, of the night is what stuck with me forever. And uh, what I do read, I've been told a lot of things about that night, but what I do remember is encountering three witches with a cauldron that was steaming and and these witches terrified me with their hag faces and their and their voices and saying they were going to put me in the pot and cook me and all this other stuff you know being very terrified and scared and crying and then realizing that these were my aunts and my grandmother disguised for halloween under these these (laughs) masks and and the cauldron was full of dry ice and it was halloween and they were on their we were on their uh in their driveway Whoa. I still remember that. People will say, like my parents sometimes have said, or or my aunt will say, hey, how can you remember that? You were you were too young. And I said, well, I remember things about your house. I remember that you guys had a, a seahorse uh, water fountain that spit water into your pool. And, and my mom goes, she didn't have one of those. And Carol goes, yeah, actually we did, Whoa. my Aunt Carol. So I think the reason I remember that and a couple of other key events from when I was around that age is because they stick with you and they're traumatic, not necessarily in a terrifying way that scarred me for life. Although I was afraid of the dark and all I had that, all those kinds of things happen during my childhood, but then my kids, you know, but Halloween was always special to me. And even though I was really scared the first time, I think I picked up what it was all about. And the fact that I like to draw monsters from before I was in kindergarten because monsters were easy to draw. No one could tell you you were drawing yeah. a monster wrong. You didn't uh, have that feeling of like, well, I don't know how to draw monsters. You could just draw a monster. You know, I mean, when it came to drawing other things, it's tougher. And so I used to draw monsters a lot. What was your favorite monster to draw real quick? I, when I was a kid, I used to draw like sort of these sort of lizardy, dinosaur-y looking things and dragons. That was kind of the big thing. I wasn't really into supernatural stuff. I mean, okay. I wasn't into um, vampires or Frankenstein or Dracula. None of that stuff interest. I mean, and even Godzilla. I wasn't that interested in Godzilla because, you know, it just seemed like a guy in a suit and they were kind of silly and stuff. Gotcha. And, but I liked Ultraman a lot. Yeah. Old man was fighting monsters and he was cool and he, you know, but, but I didn't really get into supernatural stuff until I was older, until I was in teens, started reading Stephen King and getting into the work of Bernie Wrightson Wrightson. and things like that. And then that, and, and, you know, kind of out of getting out of science fiction, the fantasy, and then more into horror. And by the time Clyde Barker was a huge deal, I was just starting comics. So I was reading Clyde Barker. And I think Clyde Barker was the last of the 
big horror years for me until I started getting into crime fiction for a long time. So I was really into crime fiction. Now I read everything. You know, I, horror, fantasy, westerns, crime, uh, sci-fi, historical novels, you know, just whatever, you know, um, autobiographies. I like to soak up uh, whatever fascinates me, whatever is interesting to me at the time. I'll, I'll soak it up for a while and then and make everyone in the house around me crazy for six months. Um, well, I can't stop talking about the right. Beatles or, you know, or Julius Caesar or whatever it is. Right, right. And, uh, but I don't. I tend not to talk about the horror stuff, um, for obvious reasons. Because I don't want to, you know, mess anyone's head up. Sure. But um, I don't know. I love this time of year. I, I love fall. I love Halloween. I love um, all the stuff that goes with it. I, I I'm sort of old school when it comes to Halloween. I mean, to me, Halloween isn't Jason and Freddy. Do you know what I mean? It's scarecrows and pumpkin jack o' lanterns and witches and ghosts and things like that. It's uh, trick or treating and and like Mike said, orange fall colors orange and black um and the nocturnals is it, it, it that's all in the nocturnals as well except the nocturnals just isn't the halloween comic it's uh right it's kind of a distillation of the things that that i that i hold dear and when i started doing the comic it was it was definitely let's do something that feels like crime fiction but is horror and is Raymond chandler and dashiell hammett and hp lovecraft and and halloween and Hanna Barbera, and just you know, like I said, a distillation of all these things that um, that I uh, that I love, and um, putting it together in a way that made sense. And at the time, there were people who said, "Well, you're crossing all these genres together. It doesn't seem like it should work." And I'm like, "Well, it works for me." And um, it, I, you know, there weren't a lot of um, sort of crime slash horror hybrid. Uh, things going on in comics at the time. And there weren't a lot of little girl characters either. That stuff started to come more in the nineties and the early two thousands. Um, you got more and more of that stuff and, uh, you get more, you know, younger people with their different, um, uh, uh, backgrounds and, and influences coming into comics. And, and, you know, now look, look, look where it's gone. It's, it's directly influencing, um, television and film and streaming shows and things like that. to like ridiculously, heavy degree which is good you know which is yeah, good absolutely uh, i did want to kind of jump in there real quick and um you mentioned uh bernie wrightson and for those who don't know uh bernie wrightson is probably one of the, he, he's most famous for at least in my opinion he created a uh, swamp thing right if i remember correctly right yeah and House bernie wrightson and len ween yeah yeah uh, yeah, just so we can make sure we, we credit those. And then uh, Clive Barker, for those who don't know, Clive Barker is a legendary horror uh, author up there with Stephen King. And he's also done video games, movies, and whatnot. Very, pretty much everybody knows Clive Barker for Hellraiser, I would say. Um, yeah, he, uh, he, he directed, uh, I guess, the first, two, yeah. the first two Hellraiser films. He also is an av- he's a very uh, accomplished and um, prolific artist. He paints like yes, yeah. a lot. Um, I actually so have his uh, piece for he did for Fangoria uh, for the special edition he did. There's a I have to go get it, but it's a very special piece he did like this beautiful like horrifying mask, and it was the cover. And I actually have that piece. Uh, yeah, it's a incredible yeah. He's a nice piece. guy too. I, I I did a signing with him because I back in in the early '90s I I did a comic a graphic novel adaptation of one of his short stories oh, called okay. Dread from the Books of Blood. And Dread was my favorite story, and I was lucky enough to get to, to get to do that. Um, wow. It was a little bit of an arduous task because when you're because the adaptation was so literal, 
and there was so much of the the prose that was in the story and it's a story where not a lot of stuff happens in the beginning it's um it's a lot of it's in the heads of the characters and stuff like that but it was really great to be able to to, to flex and and work on something like that and um trying to and expand uh you know my skill set i guess working on that although i did turn down a wolverine punisher graphic novel that marvel offered me at the time oh wow and, which they called license to print money and probably would have been yeah. um but uh in the clive barker thing i don't think i saw a dime from past my page rate but i did get to meet clive we did do a sign together he's a very charming guy very charismatic very talented and um and unfortunately, no one knows where those films are to be able to even put that book back in print because I'd like to see it back in print someday. Right, right. It's, if, if you can find Dread, if you can find it, track it down. It's, uh, it's, fun, uh, it's a fun Clyde Barker horror sort of thing. And it's probably the most straight up uh, horror that you'll see me have done because the stuff I do is more spooky than, than disturbing, you know, um, right, the way that Clive's work is. Uh, I would have loved to have done more stuff like that. I just, you tend to get, um, you tend to get uh, uh, kind of compartmentalized by people. They, they want to put you in a box and, and this guy's good at this stuff and they don't, and, they, and they're comfortable having you there. So you don't, so you don't always get to expand. Uh, so that when later on, I mean, I don't know, 10 or 12 years later, I was offered uh, a chance to do a, a um, historical fiction with Disney Italia for on the black on the, the last battle, wow! Uh, which is Romans and Celts in, uh, in the time of Julius Caesar. That I kind of I almost turned it down. Th- I tried to turn it down three times because I, I just didn't think I was right for it. But then when I realized that I could <clears throat> I could invest myself in this story like I could any other through the characters, and then I kind of immersed myself in kind of a crash course in uh, just sort of learning about those that era because I we don't cover that in school. Um, maybe they do a little bit now, but I, I immersed myself in um, 52 BC and what was going on there in Europe and uh, with the Roman Empire and the Celts and stuff like that. And, and that and that actually led to a great uh, appreciation and love of history, especially ancient history. But but I but the point is, is that I was able to um, expand again, because the thing that really pushed me to do that book was, well, you know, look what look what look at Frank Miller did. Frank Miller did you know 300 and no one would have ever expected that from him and if he can do 300 maybe this will be my 300 it didn't turn out to be my 300 i mean <laughs> it didn't go on to be a movie it didn't sell millions of copies it, it did fine in italy and it did okay over here actually but um it was kind of a one-off and that was fine i'm gonna be right back um, go ahead and continue yeah. i'm gonna be right back go ahead yeah so uh but we were talking about um why did I, we're, we're talk, oh yeah, we were talking about Clyde Barker and, uh, and, and, and Ber, we were talking about Bernie Wrightson earlier too. And, that and was, his yeah, that, that, well, yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you, I guess like being kind of being pigeonholed into doing a certain type of genre, right. But you do so much. I mean, you've done obviously your nocturnals and, and the last battle, like you were mentioning, but I mean, you've done Punisher, you've done, Batman, JLA, you did Iron Fist, and then you just did a an X Men story that's coming out soon too, yeah. right? Yeah, um, I have. I've, I've you know I've done not a ton of things for Marvel over the last thirty something years, but I've done I've done quite a few things. Um, 
I even did, I've done some Thor stuff. Uh, the X-Men story came about uh, last year when I was just finishing um, the, the campaign for my Giant Killer uh, 20th anniversary hardcover was finishing up. And I was prepared to work on on the on that book, putting that book together and doing new material for it and all this kind of stuff. And then I got a call from Alex Ross and he told me he was curating this uh, anthology, this Marvel anthology, getting artists who he liked and who he knew to, uh, together to um, do short pieces, short stories for this anthology. And you know, he said, you can do whatever you want. You can pick any characters from the Marvel universe um, you know, 10 pages, you can write it, you can work with a writer, whatever you want to do. <coughs> and then it was just up to me to kind of figure out, can I make this fit into my schedule? Do I want to turn this down? No, I don't want to turn this down, especially since I was going to ask Alex to do a pinup for my giant killer book. I couldn't very well say no and then ask him for a pinup. Uh, <laughs> as it turns out, he did a wonderful pinup and I said yes and I I took uh, a lot of time to do the X-Men story, a lot more than I thought I would, actually. Yeah. I, I thought I would work on it over like maybe two months during the summer to do 10 pages. And it took me all the summer and into the fall. Um, and yeah, I'm, I, glad I'm glad I did it. Um, it I was, saw some uh, of the pages when you were working on them, and I think it's some of your best best stuff. I mean, it's amazing. Like, it's really thanks. fun. I, I appreciate hearing that because I, I'm not sure how I feel about it, to be honest. I, mm. I feel like I was... Um, I was uh, looking way too much at Alex's stuff while I was doing it. I was looking at Dave Cochran's stuff a lot because I'm, I went back to that era. The story I did takes place the, the day after the events of Giant Size X-Men number one in 1975. Oh, wow. And uh, the, um, the style of, of, of Cochran, you know, Cochran's style and even just the, the, the coloring and all that kind of stuff that was, you know, that was going on in that book really informed what I did. And I also didn't want to veer away from that too much with some like crazy painterly stuff. So I just tried to do the best job I could. And also looking at the way that Alex was so, such a master when it comes to the superhero stuff, I mean, pretty much anything he tackles. Yeah, it's always and usually it, just it, that is the worst thing an artist can do is just stare at Alex Ross's stuff while you work. <laughs> do, do not do that. That is no. a bad Yeah, Because I spent all summer feeling inadequate basically and feeling like uh i was trying to fill this person's shoes and no one told me to do that no that was on on that was on me i put that on myself which can i say this real quickly i and i generally mean this 100 percent. not even like we said this on the show in the past i actually think your your art is better than alex ross i truly mean that well i'm sorry for you I don't <laughs> no, look, Alex Ross's work is great. It's amazing. I'm not saying it's not. I have some great pieces of his, but there is just something about the way you. I don't know. It's just it's it. There's I don't know. It's it's like. Well, it's a feeling that you can get when you look at yours. I mean, sure, you can look at Alex Ross's stuff, and it looks like a picture was taken with incredible Photoshop work to make the shine really shine and whatnot. And yet he doesn't use Photoshop. He's a total Luddite. And that's the thing is he's, his, his mastery of technique is, uh, is, is journeyman level. I mean, he, there's nobody who can, uh, there's very few people who can match or beat him when it comes to the, 
the technical aspect of how he's able to achieve effects, mostly with just water-based medium, acrylic and watercolor, uh, so successfully. Mm. And with, with this feeling of, of complete mastery of the surface and mastery of the technique, and I feel like when I'm painting, when I started painting, I, I kind of know where I'm going to, I know what I can do. I understand technique and things like that, but there's still this kind of like anything can happen feeling when I started painting. And I, I like I said, I have an idea of what I'm, what I'm doing, what I'm going to do, but it, I don't have it down to like some minute compartmentalized detailed effort that I know ahead of time is going to happen. I just kind of go and do what I'm doing. And I, and I, I, I it's funny because Alex and I used to say, he used to say, I wish I could get looser like you. And I'd say, well, I wish I could get tighter like you. So um, I think that one of the main things is Alex has this uh, goal in mind, this, this job that he's doing, which is to not only knock your socks off, but, um, but to conform uh, reality to his imagination. And so if he can imagine a thing, he can make it look real for you and present it to you in a way that you'll believe it. You know, when you, you know, and look at any of his stuff, and you know what I'm talking about. Look at the, look at the way he does the metal on Colossus, the metal skin of Colossus. You know, um, there's a lot of thought and planning and, uh, anal you know, analyzing in there. And I, I one feel like this episode is turning into like, how awesome is Alex Ross? <laughs> well, wait, but let me, but let me, but, but let me just flip back to me okay then that's what you want to do <laughs> yeah let's do that <laughs> alex a compliment because he he liked what i did he was happy he was happy with what i did everyone you know marvel would seem to be happy with what i did they they used my work to um to announce the the project uh to, they sneaked they sneaked both of my big i have a 10 page story it has two splash pages they showed both the splash pages off right off the bat which awesome. i was kind of not happy about they kind of you know it sort of like blew the wad there a little early, sure. but at the same time, I mean, I, there was such a great uh, response to it that I was like, okay, all right, fine. So, um, but Alex paid me, uh, one of the compliments that he paid me was, he said, I noticed uh, the way that you figured out Cyclops's um, uh, visor and the way it works, the way that Dave Cockrum imagined it working is not the way I imagined it. He said, you solved it in a way I never have. And that was it. That was like the, that's incredible. That was yeah. the best thing that I could think was like, wow, that's really cool. How lucky was I, you know? <laughs> and that was just all about like, okay, how does this thing work? And you know, when you're trying to draw something you've never drawn before, you, you should try and analyze it a little bit to understand it. I'm not saying I do that for everything, but for some reason, I I, I got that part right. And I hope that people, a lot of people have told me who've seen the work, they say, wow, there's a lot of Dave Cockrum in there. I personally really don't see the Dave Cochran because I wasn't um, trying so hard to like do Dave Cochran because which is easy. You could draw Wolverine's face a certain way. You can draw all the characters faces a certain way. I didn't really do that. I think the fact that there's so much primary colors in there and all these characters are kind of crowded together that, that evokes that time period. And when you guys see the book uh, next month, it comes out in November. Um, check it out. It's Marvel number two. Yeah, and, and then um, you I, did a, a variant cover for it too, right? I think that yeah, you have to the stores have to order twenty five, and then one of your variant covers is, becomes available to them. Yeah, at the right? time, Alex hadn't actually painted a second cover. He'd only painted one cover for the series so far, and I guess he hadn't really spoken to him about doing the rest. Although I just assumed he was doing them all, and I think he is. Yeah. So 
he said, well, maybe you should do the cover for issue two. I was like, uh, okay. I mean, aren't yeah. you doing it? I don't know. They haven't even talked to me about it. So then like a month or so later, um, this was like in November, I guess they, uh, the editor said, do you want to do a variant cover? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I did, uh, so I, you know, went back and did the X-Men. I'd been off of the X-Men for that story for about a month or so before I went back to it. And it was a lot easier because I was more, um, more, um, you know, familiar with the characters and how, how things work and when you're painting them. But, uh, that, that cover is a one in 100 actually. Oh, one in 100. So yeah, a retailer has to order a hundred copies to get one of those, which I'm not happy about, to be honest. I yeah, mean, that's, 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 that means that how many people, that means out of, that a one out of 100, less than one out of 100 people who buy the book are going to, are going to see that cover. Yeah. I mean, you can see it online anytime you want. Um, but you know, all the people say, Oh, but it makes it more collectible. That doesn't help me, you know? Right. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point of the, uh, the idea of collectible versus getting it out there. Right. Cause it's like, I, I buy comics weekly and it's nice to see like, Oh, you know, I got this cover. That's one out of a hundred. But then when you think about it, it's kind of to your point, it's like, well, how many people have got to see the beauty of that cover? Right. Like not that many. And it's like, or how many people even get the chance to even have it? Really not that many. Right. And what sucks even more so is that all of these uh, comic shops, they end up charging, you know, you know, aftermarket price of whatever it would be. And it's yeah. just like, you know, yeah, I get why they do that, but at the same time, it's Yeah, it's like, a sales yeah. technique. To get. Now, what's flattering, the flattering part of it is, I guess, is that they thought that what I had done was special enough to be an incentive yeah. toward copies. You know, um, I, I was just hoping I could get a bunch, to, you know, myself. You know, I could, I could get a quantity of them. And actually, it turns out that there's a comic book chain that orders in, in really high... Guys, I'm on a podcast. Hey. Sorry, let me sit no these guys straight. Baby Gabe, uh, go ahead. Go downstairs now. <laughs> oh, leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> be authoritative. Yeah. Be authoritative. Hey. So, okay, go. I know. He knows now. Okay. Anyway. Um, baby, baby Gabe, we are so, clear now. I thought they knew. So what's, it, so what's your... Um, when you... you working on your own book, like Nocturnals, and then working on <clears throat> a story like this Marvel X-Men story you're doing. Obviously, I would assume you have more, uh, there's more feeling and interest when you're doing a Nocturnals book that's your own kind of baby, right? Yeah, you know, um, that's obviously that's true. I mean, that's you can't get around the fact that these characters are very personal. However, when it came to choosing what I was going to do for the anthology, I, the first character I thought it was Conan. They said, you can't do Conan. That's, that's the only one we can't do. I was like, Oh, okay. Now what do I do then? And, you know, really it was kind of wide open there. You know, I think Steve Rude had chosen the fantastic four. Um, and, but there were so many other things that no one had, cho- like no one had chosen the X-Men and, and I thought, you know, that could be kind of, and Alex was like, yeah, you could sell those pages easy. <laughs> it's like, well, I wasn't really thinking about that, but I guess, you know, I could have done 10 splash pages, but uh, I, it, when I thought about going back to that point in time, it was very personal to me because as a kid, that was stuff was huge for me. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge deal because when I was reading comics, that was a book of new characters that were no one had seen before. I mean, I remember seeing uh, Wolverine when he showed up in the Hulk and being really excited that the Wolverine was back. In, in X-Men, 
Yeah. And that was that was pretty cool because I mean up till then I I was just reading comics about characters that had been around before I even got into comics, Ghost Rider, Thor, Fantastic Four, yeah. Hulk, the Avengers, Captain America, whatever. So all those guys already existed, but these were brand new for us. Like when Howard the Duck number one came out, we were excited. I remember my friend down the street. He's my only other friend that collected comics when I was in, in elementary school. A kid had got me interested in comics. Eric Messinio, who I still can't find. Don't know where he is. Haven't seen him since I was 12, 11 or 12. Eric says, have you seen Howard the Duck? I go, what's that? This is a comic. I go, what is it? Like a kid comic? He goes, no, it's Marvel. Well, what is he? Is he a guy in a duck costume? No, he's a duck. <laughs> I remember this. I remember this conversation very explicitly because I was like dumbfounded. I didn't understand. You know, I hadn't seen him in uh, Man Thing. Yeah. So I I somehow end up at Seven Eleven that week, and I get a copy of Number One, and I'm like, God damn, he is a duck. Look at that. But Spider Man's on the cover, and you know, it's in this. It's taking place in the Marvel universe, and it's okay. And it, that was a big deal because it was new. Nova Number One, big deal. Oh, she Hulk yeah. Number One. Even Dazzler was kind of a big deal, you know, yeah. Dazzler number one. You know, a so, lot of people hate on Dazzler. I think Dazzler's kind of cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Dazzler, I think, was just, it could have just been done a little more, uh, you know what, I don't think, I don't know who, who was, it was, uh, who was the market for Dazzler. If I knew who the market was, maybe it'd be easier to figure out well, more the, of that character. The disco market, right? That's why they created. Well, it, I mean, right? was it was it was it was it something they thought more female, you know, young like teenage girls would be interested gotcha. in, or young girls would be interested? I don't know, you know, uh, maybe. Uh, gotcha. But gotcha. yeah, disco and 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 kind of mainstream, maybe. Uh, definitely, X Men people were supposed to like it, but I mean, you know, I don't know. I I bought the first issue. That was later. Anyway. Um, so, so, so part of me, the, the, the kid, the 10 year old in me finds that stuff very personal. And I went back and I read, reread a bunch of those issues to kind of get the feel of what the characters were like and you know, how they react, how they interact with each other and that kind of thing. And you can see why Thunderbird and um, Sunfire left so soon because they, they were angry and we already had kind of an angry guy in Wolverine. So Wolverine became the angry guy outsider guy and they trimmed and trimmed and trimmed so my, the idea that i had when i when discussing this with alex was what if all the x-men who who actually after giant says x-men number one the x-men split the old x-men split off from the new x-men uh beast isn't even there although he's in my story he's a, he's an avenger at this point but i put him in the story so the idea was what if all the x-men were together what if they had actually stayed together as one big super group how would that look? How would that be? What would that look like? Hmm. You know, what if you had them all stuck in a room together? What would happen? And that's, you know, that's basically the, the, the main thrust of my story is the interaction between them. And is this going, is this going to work? Um, so it was like a slice of, uh, of, of Marvel history that actually never takes place. So while I was working on it, I kept thinking, wow, this is a lot of work. Why is this first page taking two weeks to do? I don't know. I think I felt a lot of pressure. And then I kept thinking, why didn't I just do Deathlock and Kill Raven like killing Martians? That would have been so much easier. You know? <laughs> Rubble, flames, smoke. You so, know what I mean? So metal. <laughs> I still, yeah, so metal. And I still would love to do that. Maybe one day I will. Um, do you feel a, a similar type of 
situation when you're starting a nocturnal story like or, or is that so much more easy for you just to jump in the nocturnals there's so much stuff there's so much more stuff going on in my head with these characters a lot of it has to do with trying to figure out um sometimes trying to figure out what the mysteries are behind some of these characters like the newer characters even some of the older characters and how to fit them all into the story in a way that they aren't just they're not just taking up space because they're, they're supposed to be there because they're a nocturnal like in the new book that I'm working on now, that I'm 50 pages into penciling. That's right, I'm 50 pages into penciling the, the next Nocturnals book. Wow. Um, that could turn out to be half or less or more than half of the, of the actual finished uh, length. At this point, I'm not sure. But, uh, and is that book going to be published by you? or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, it'll be, it'll, it, we'll, we'll, we'll fund it through Kickstarter and... Um, Eventually, it'll get collected as part of like a, a, a three vault, as part of a, 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 an omnibus kind of okay. thing. Um, I have to do the, the first. So there's two, two volumes worth of nocturnal stuff already. And then the third volume would be Sinister Path, which came out a couple of years ago. And then this one and then another one. And they're kind of a trilogy. They all kind of work together. So they'll fit, they'll fit well together. Awesome. And, but on this one, um, there are three characters, three nocturnals characters who aren't in the story because there's just, there, it's too much. I mean, it's like superhero stories. When you have a group, like an X-Men story or something, or Fantastic Four, X-Men, whatever it is. Um, did I say X-Men twice? Because I meant to say Avengers. But the point is, is that you have to up the ante so much when you're doing a superhero story because these characters are more and more powerful. Together, they're even more powerful. You have to figure out ways to kind of hamstring them to make them weaker. Uh, maybe one character dies or is in a coma or goes missing or who knows what. Um, all these things happen. You split them into smaller teams and things like that. Right. Um, I've done all that stuff before. I've done that in, in superhero comics. I've done it with Nocturnals. So this time I thought, what if I just take some of them out of the equation? I took the least supernatural characters out of the equation because this, this story takes is a very supernatural kind of, kind of story. And if I have character X, Y, and Z in there, it's too much firepower. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And then you can tell a different kind of story. Uh, so that's what I'm trying this time around. So it's just Doc, Polychrome, Gunwitch, and Eve, and then the new and then some of the new characters that, that appeared in them for the first time in Sinister Path. There's Nyx and her son, Ajax, um, from the Hemlock family. And the Hemlock family are like the nocturnals that nobody knew about that have been around all this time, but our nocturnals never interacted with their nocturnals. Well, actually, one of them did, but wasn't talking about it. Um, and that's probably really confusing for people that haven't read Sinister Path, but go read it. You can, you know, go to Bud's. No, not no. Go to bigwow.com, bigwowart.com, and you can order it straight oh, awesome. from us. Awesome. Straight um, from us. You're, since your Nocturnals is so rich uh, in story, would you ever want to see it, or has it ever been talked about being into a television show or a movie? Um, you get bites on the line all the time. I mean, since the book first came out in 94 and 95, I've had interest from different producers and and things like that. The first person to be to be to call me about nocturnals was a producer who who um, <clears throat> he, he worked for Richard Donner, wow. and he was very interested in the work of a screenwriter named Andrew Kevin Walker, who had just written a, uh, a film that was about to come out called Seven. So when they contacted me, Seven hadn't come out yet, and they sent me a copy of the script, and they said we'd like to get this. I'd like to get this guy's eyes on nocturnals and see what he would come up with. 
And I was like, great. And then uh, my attorney, who's like my sort of uh, entertainment lawyer, came back to me and said, well, they want a free option. We're not getting out any free options. And, um, <laughs> you know, I understand all that. It's kind of how business works. But at the same time, it would have been really cool if Andrew Kevin Walker had been attached to a nocturnal film. Because later on, he ended up writing Sleepy Hollow. Wow. Amongst many other things. Um, and I loved his Sleepy Hollow script. I mean, uh, Tim Burton changed uh, key things in it, but there, there were really spooky, creepy things in that story that I thought, this is exactly how I'd want to see a Nocturnals movie made. Like, you know, some area that's full of uh, supernatural elements and it's spooky and you have to explore what's going on here. Who are these people? Why are things happening? And what's all this creepy stuff going on all the time? Like a very Halloween type film. And the Sleepy Hollow film is like that, except there are all these elements that, um, that were cut out of Walker's script. When I, when I read that script, I thought, God, he would have been perfect. But over the years, there have been producers who have come to me. They always have some pitch. They almost never want to pay you any money up front. Sure. Sometimes you give them a free option because they have credits. Like Don Murphy, who was producer on Natural Born Killers and quite a few other films. He had an option for a while. And usually what it means is they have a deal with the studio and they'll take it to that studio and they'll think they can set it up there. And if they don't kind of lose interest, um, as far as TV goes, it's kind of, it's a similar kind of thing. There's people who are interested in doing animated stuff and television and movies and things like that. Um, you would think and, with a streaming platform that would be, it would be a good option for that, right? Like a Netflix. Yeah. Movie, I mean, uh, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any medium where you couldn't do a cool nocturnals thing. Maybe I'm biased, but, for me, the Nocturnals is a comic that I wanted to see. I didn't. Sure. It, it's it's I, I I try to make a comic that I would want to read, and so if if I if I'm a comic book fan who likes most of the stuff that we all like, I can't see why it would be a loser. Um, I'm I'm talking with a with a producer right now about it. Um, nice. There was one. There was one you told I, me a while I back. All my excitement, though. You know what I mean for yeah. the green. Until there's a green light. Down the road, I just reserve. I, I, I can't let myself get crazy excited about it. I mean, I used to do that, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it's like, it's like, it's like working. Um, um, it's like panning for gold and, and working a claim. You, you just got to keep working at it and working at it, and and until you find the color, you know. Yeah. And sometimes you don't find it. So, the way I look at it is, I've got this claim over here. You want to go work it? Go ahead and work it. I'm going to concentrate on on what I can control in my world, which is doing comics and doing artwork and, and, and telling the stories that I can tell. And if someone comes along and wants to do nocturnals and believe me, they come along and they talk a good talk, man. They get real excited about it. And then nothing happens. You know, uh, so yeah, I can just I mention someone who, who you did some work with that was a musician that was possibly interested in doing a nocturnals movie. Can we mention that? Or is that? Yeah. yeah Rob, Rob called, you can call me, email me once. Uh, this was, I think it was after maybe the first or second Halloween film had come out. And he said, hey, um, <clears throat> what's your number? I, uh, what's your current phone number? I think I want to do a Nocturnals movie. <clears throat> and I was like, ooh. You know, because I you know, Rob has just done Halloween 2 or whatever. So, I mean, and we're know. talking about, for those who don't know, Rob Zombie. Rob Zombie, right. Rob Zombie. Artwork. Yeah, I didn't catch you the did that. Artwork for, <laughs> I love you did some artwork for two of his albums. 
albums, right? That's right. Yes, yeah, they did. For Hellboy did you? Blood I didn't know that. You did. You did artwork for Rob Zombie, huh? Wow. Yeah, I did the cover of the CD booklet for um, not the cover of the CD. That's Basil Gogos. Okay. But the cover of the CD booklet for Hellbilly Deluxe, his first solo album. Wow. And then he did Hellbilly Deluxe 2 some years later, and then I did a piece in there, like a gatefold piece in there. Wow, can um, you imagine Rob Zombie doing Nocturnals? Holy crap. <laughs> well, he, he was a fan of Nocturnals. He did an intro he, uh, for um, one of the books back in the late 90s. He, he and I talked about doing a Rob Zombie versus the Nocturnals comic. Wow. Um, and then, you know, he, he got this idea in the early 2000s that he wanted to do a nocturnal film or, or you know. So I, I let myself be excited for like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, that would be cool. And again, that's it'd be Rob's version of Nocturnals, not mine. Right. You know, and I understand that. I, I get that. I, I've seen enough movie adaptations to know that you're not necessarily going to get the same thing, especially with him. But still, it would have been fun to see what he would have done with it. Now, you know, can I ask? It, you know, it seems like you have a very specific vision. Uh, vision. Would you ever want to just direct it yourself or write it yourself? Yes. Yeah. I actually have a screenplay that's uh, been unfinished for a long time, and then I've got several different pitches where I've I've tweaked the the nocturnal storyline or tweaked the setting or in you know in various ways to, to present it more simply to a, a film audience so I've, I've i've spent a lot of time doing that and i don't do that anymore because it's time consuming and it's a waste yeah. of time until someone's paying you to do it sure. what's the point so i mean yeah I a, never you think maybe doing that's an indiegogo for a movie would be no 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 i i, I it's no i don't think so i think um i think my i put my best foot forward when it comes to um, doing comics. And I, I'm, I'm almost 55. So, I mean, I don't know that this is the time to jump into a brand new career. Right. Sure. Although I do really get excited about the idea of, of doing board games. That's something that I would like to do. That'd be cool. I can see a Nocturnals board game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would like to do, I would like to do board games with, with my IP. Um, it, it's, uh, it's something I've been talking. I have, I've been working with a, with a game designer, um, and we're actually working on um, a Nocturnals card game right now. It's oh, not wow. like a Magic the Gathering type of thing, but you, you can play you can play a different of the Nocturnals characters, and, and oh. it would be really fun. But it's something that would be a lot easier to learn than Magic the Gathering. Right. Not, I don't know if Magic the Gathering is easy or hard to learn. I don't know, but um, it's it's easier now. I can tell you that. But it was oh okay. Yeah, it's still it's still. So we're talking we're talking about doing that, and we're talking about like we're you know we have a, a board game that we're that we've got in development. Um, really, the the thing with the board games is you have to have you have to have some some uh, capital to yeah. to do those figures because the miniatures are important to me. I want to do miniatures of characters, and they have to be sculpted, and I don't know how to do that. Right. <clears throat> so we have to come up with the capital to 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 afford to put the miniatures out there so people can see what they're going to get. Although you can't just say, "Oh, there's going to be cool miniatures. Give us money." It doesn't right. work. That <laughs> right. Right. Obviously. So. Do you know what's interesting is, um, do you play video games yourself or no? No, okay. I, I, I can't. I get too caught into it and then I don't get any work done. Gotcha. So do, are you aware of a developer called uh, Telltale Games? Video games? Yeah. No, probably not. So I bring them up because Telltale is, um, they're known for making the Walking Dead video game, the, basically like a bunch of like comic book uh, video games in a, like mm-hmm. an important click adventure world. And so when I first played uh, Fable, they made one by, I'm sure you know Fable from DC, right? Or Fables, sure. sorry. Um, yeah. They did one for Fables, and it's phenomenal. And when I played that, 
the whole time. One of the one of the thoughts I've had was like, wow, what if the, what if Telltale did a Nocturnals video game? So my question mm. is, what if there was a way to make a Nocturnals video game? Because uh, I feel like that your property is perfect for that. I um it, again, it's just sort of like, well, you know, a lot of a lot of this stuff happens when a book has popularity, um, and has good has really strong sales, and I don't do Nocturnals in a in a periodical fashion to where that's a thing. You know what I mean? Sure, like right, right. if I was doing a monthly nocturnals book through a publisher and, or even, even a bi-monthly book through a publisher, we would have a hell of a lot better chance of getting the, the sales up to get the attention of, of, of licensors who want to, who would want to do things like that. Gotcha. Um, I am in talks with, uh, with an RPG company uh, about doing, um, a, a version of Nocturnals is an RPG, but it's not a Nocturnals RPG game. It would be a, a source book that you play in a pre-existing uh, RPG. When game. you say RPG, do you mean um, tabletop? Uh, yeah, um, not a board game, but yeah, uh, you know, like, where like D and D style. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, gotcha. yeah, exactly. It'd be like if, if there was Dungeons and Dragons, but a Nocturnal source book, so you could play the Nocturnals yeah. world with. Dragons. That seems um, to be a no. common trend now because I know um, there's a movie coming called uh, it's like Green Something, and they're doing the same mm-hmm. thing. It's from A24. Green Ronin. Uh, maybe that might have been it. I can't remember, but it well, was Green uh, Ronin. Green Ronin did a, a, a game called Mutants and Mastermind back in the early 2000s, and they did a Nocturnal Source book to play. You could play. You could play the Mutants and Masterminds game in the Nocturnal's gotcha. world. But we did gotcha. a source book for that. And I'm talking with them again about doing the same thing with this RPG that they're now uh, that they're now doing, um, but I can't really talk too much about that because we're not even like in the we're not we're, we're in early stages of talking about that. Absolutely. Uh, but um, I like the guys; they're down to earth. They put out good product, and it's very simple and clean. Um, I mean, I'm I'm up for all these kinds of things. I think it would be fun, you know. Uh, but but the problem is, is if you get too caught up in that, and then you start comparing, like yourself like well how come i don't have a tv show or how come i don't have this how come i don't have that really none of that stuff matters i mean there's a lot of people who get adaptations that are not that great yeah you mm-hmm. know um but it is hard as an artist to, to see especially when you know people or you've like kind of come up in the same aisles at comic cons doing art with these people and then all of a sudden you see one of them has a show on hulu or one of them's doing yeah. a, an eight-page story in heavy metal or something like that and yeah and there is this kind of, for me, and I, and I don't know if you feel it too, but like, I, it's almost like I feel like my career is slipping away from me or I, I made the wrong move somewhere and it's hard not to go down a slide of just like. Uh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, I used to, I used to get caught up in that a lot more. Um, <clears throat> I just have to walk into a comic shop and look at the rack <laughs> and see the covers and the, and the project that, that I hadn't been called for. Right. And I thought I could have really done, oh, I could have really knocked that one out of the park. You know that, Oh, I would have loved to have done that one, but you know what? Everybody gets that feeling, you know, I mean, who doesn't get that feeling? I mean, um, very few people. Right. Um, the thing is, is you have your own trajectory and you have to follow your trajectory your way. And if you're happy, you know, like, I, okay. I, you know, I, I don't have the fame of, of some other comic book people, but I, but I'm comfortable right now and I'm not stressed out. I'm not unhappy. Um, I, I have built up a, 
a, a, you know, a decent fan base over the years that I can put out a Kickstarter art book or I can put out a graphic novel or whatever it is, and it's not going to fall flat in its face for lack of interest. Right. You know, right. and that, that is nothing to sneeze at. You know, you could always look at someone else's Kickstarter. I mean, there's people out there who no one's ever heard of yeah. who are doing comic book Kickstarters that are going crazy gangbusters, right? Because, but why? Sometimes it's the subject matter. Sometimes because they have 40 variant covers of women in various stages of undress. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. That's that is old. not, yeah. is that your trajectory? It's not my trajectory. Right, if I right. wanted to do that, I could do that. Right. You know, um, I, I don't want to be known as that. That's not of interest to me. So right. you mentioned art you books and your own thing and keep, you gotta be, you gotta just be true to your, to your, to yourself and, and to your, your, I don't want to say art because we're telling stories. So you have stories that you want to tell to, you got to just tell them to the best of your ability. And one of the things I really admire about you, Mike, is the fact that you didn't let a lot of things stop you from putting out a ton of work over your lifetime so far. You put out a lot of comic book work. Yes. When you want something, you do it. You make time for it. And so many people don't do that. You know, um, some of us wait until some editor says yes. Mm -hmm. We're going to hire you to do this thing. And then you sit there and you think, wow, well, I guess no editor is interested in the story I want to do, so it'll never get done. Well, that, that might be true. But then maybe what if you stop? What if you didn't have to wait for an editor or a publisher to be interested in publishing you yeah. or paying you? to? Because uh, to, you know, a lot of them will publish you if they don't have to pay you up front. Yep. Heck, you know, lots of them, most of them will. But what if, what if there was a way that you could reach an audience and you didn't have to worry about a what a publisher thought or whether or not they wanted to do it or whether they were going to bankroll it and or if there was anyone that was going to buy it. And, and I'll tell you, Kickstarter has completely changed the game for a lot of us. I mean, my my outlook on things has, has never been as exciting as one. I mean, the last time I got this excited about doing comics or doing anything was was in the early 90s when when Nocturnals was, uh, was, you know, I was doing Nocturnals and I thought, wow, I mean, so I can just do, I can come up with a concept and I can do the comic and they'll pay me to do it. And I had that one more time with Giant Killer in 99 and then never again. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Well, that's not necessarily true. I, I mean, I worked with Oni on, uh, on Dark Forever, Nocturnals, Dark Forever and Outskirts of Doom, but those opportunities don't come very often and they haven't come since 2000, I guess where I had something that was personal to me that I, I took to someone and said, here, I want to do this. And they said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll fund that. You know, um, that's just, it's up to me to do that now. And, and I have a way to do it with Kickstarter. Um, so I have a, a base of people who are, who are, who are waiting for me to do something. And then mm -hmm. there's a whole group of people who are new to things that come in later and then every time you do something, you, you just hopefully add more people on to that, that um, the audience. And really, it's about building your audience and, and um, maintaining that audience. And you've done, I mean, you definitely have a following of, of fans who, who love Nocturnals, love your art. I mean, I'm one of them. I have Gunwitch tattooed on my arm. Yeah. That's right. Like yeah. Many other people I have seen with, with Nocturnals tattoos as well. But, um, and, and you've released several Nocturnals hardcovers and and also art books and you mentioned kickstarter and you just wrapped up a, a kickstarter correct with a new art book uh, children of the night yeah i i've been, I've been doing um i've been what's going on 
Nothing, nothing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's something in the background. You're saying something. If it's entertaining, let's hear it. No, no, you're fine. Go ahead. I don't go want people to get bored. So, it's yeah, naked. I'm lucky enough to do uh, a series of art. Okay. <laughs> I think she just walked out of the shower. <laughs> anyways, anyways, <laughs> continue, Dad. <laughs> um, so, I was, gonna, I was just going to say, uh, I, I've been, I, okay, so I've been doing art books now for I don't know probably I want to say 10 years the first one the first major color hardcover art book I put out with through image was I think in 2010 or 2011 and um it was called the goddess and the monster you can still find it actually you can't it's not in print but you can still find it and uh that was like kind of like 20 year retrospective of my stuff at that point maybe more than 20 years and after that uh, I put out um, a few more uh, art, uh, hardcover art book collections with Big Wow Art, Steve Morger, Big Wow Art. We put out Siren, Sorceress, Enchantress. And Enchantress was my first Kickstarter. And then after and the Enchantress Kickstarter, we did the Nocturnals graphic novel Kickstarter. And then I've done three or four art books since then. I've done uh, Mercenary. Then we did... Uh, Sorry, it's hard to keep track. Did Mercenary. Then we did uh, Night Studio, In the Night Studio. And after In the Night Studio, we did uh, Night Owls. And then this year's Kickstarter was Children of Night. Are you sensing that there's a theme? I, I think there might be a theme there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the, uh, the one we just finished was different from the other ones in that it had a, uh, a companion uh, item which was a, an art portfolio called October lands. And so October lands had uh, some new stuff and some classic stuff that we put into a sort of like a, you know, Halloween, October sort of feel uh, portfolio. And that also did really well. I love the portfolio format and I've been trying to kind of play around in that as much as I can in the last couple of years, we did a nocturnals art portfolio in 2017 and uh, the October lands one is still available. I and mean, even though the, even though the, the Kickstarter for the book and the portfolio are over, if you go to the Kickstarter for children of night, um, there's a link on the page that takes you to my fulfillment people, which is sidekick labs. They actually print uh, the trading cards that we've done like creeping flesh and the nocturnal trading card set and they do Mars attacks and things like that. So they are going to be running the survey store. So you can actually get on their mailing list right now and you, and they'll let you know when the survey store is open so that you can get the book, you can get the portfolio. We have other, many other items on there that we're adding on uh, cards, uh, uh, trading card sets. Uh, we actually expanded the portfolio of uh, another 19 plates that you could choose from with two more, uh, illustrated envelopes. So if you wanted to get um, almost 30 pieces, you could do that. You could build it up. Um, and they'll, I think they all, I'm not sure if they all come signed. I think they do though. Yeah. It, it's fun. I love looking at some of your books, you know, your art books. And I've, I, I know one of the ways that you work when you're doing your, your paintings and, and drawings is that you'll use people to pose in the positions that you want to to create in the in the book and so it's fun because sometimes i'll see stuff that i helped you pose with yeah years you'll ago see and somewhere yeah yeah i um i've been i that was the thing that in art school that they would always they give you an, you know when i was an illustration major in art school i went to ccac in oakland and then i transferred over to the academy 
uh, after two and a half years and finished my time there. And one of the big things with uh, these um, contemporary illustrators who were teaching a lot of these courses was what they call scrap. And scrap is photo reference. And so if you turn in a piece, uh, they would look at the hand and go, did you shoot scrap for that hand? And you'd be like, mm, no. And they go, well, you could tell because that hand is weak. Mm. You want, you know, better drawing in that hand. Um, and so for them, it was about hiring models or getting people in your family or friends to model for you, shooting the photo reference and working from that so that everything looks accurate and no art directors are going to point at it or editors are going to point at it and go, that's funky. Can you fix that? And it's yeah. about skill and draftsmanship. And we were doing lots and lots of life drawing and painting from models and all that kind of stuff, you know, all day long, every day we were doing that. So you were working for models in the studio at school and you were photographing models for the work you were doing. And so when it came time to, to do comics, it was a natural progression. And what was kind of cool about it was some artists are better at drawing types than others. Some artists have kind of a generic face they draw and they add a mustache or a certain color hair or a hat or glasses or a scar, whatever, you know, maybe they give them a big nose or a little nose, whatever, or no nose. They have these types that these archetypes, which is fine, you know, but then there's people who draw people that look real to you. Like Gene Cohen's art, when he draws a person, that person looks like a real person. That's because usually it was based on somebody. And that's the same when you look at Norman Rockwell's work or Gene Cornwell, or I'm going back and back into you know, the golden age of illustration. But anytime, look at Drew Struzan, the, the, the movie yeah. poster guy. Drew yeah. Struzan's yeah. working for him photo reference, obviously when he's doing Indiana Jones or whoever he's doing on a poster. So that helps inform and tell the story even, with even more power and strength. Um, and it's yeah. fun because you get your friends together and your family together and you're telling a story together. Right. And yeah. you're doing a shoot and it feels, and it's not like making necessarily like making a film, but it's very close to it because you, what you want people to emote, you want, it's not just taking a position where put your hand here and you some of that, but you know, lighting and things like the lighting super important when you're shooting reference for things. I mean, lighting is really important in my work. And so I want to get the lighting, lighting right. And so one of the things that's fascinating to me is throwing the light on a subject and watching how it changes and how you can get emotional about something based on the lighting alone. Yeah. Let alone yeah. the color, shadows, light. You've, uh, that stuff is so important to um, to storytelling. Well, especially with yours, because your your work is so it's such a feeling when when you look at the the yeah. colors that you use. And then, like I, I seen your, I've met your dad, but it's really fun to to see a character in and your. I see your dad in in the yeah. In the stories are all, all often. That's Revenge. It's my revenge on my, my parents is to put them in comics. Actually, oh, they, they like it. But when I, when I was a kid, they didn't understand my obsession with comics. They were a little scared by it. Sure. So, I feel like the parents were rotting. I thought comic books were rotting my brain. One of my... Uh, uh, Mike, well, Mike, really quickly, uh, just yeah. so everybody knows, we do have to wrap it up soon here. So, uh, Mike, go ahead and ask something, then I'll do the wrap-up. Oh, I was uh, going to just say one of my favorite pieces that you did is actually... Uh, surprised of me as the zombie, which you did for my. You're gonna say that. A lot of fun. Cover. Yeah. That was. A lot of fun. I um, I really enjoyed doing. Uh, I think was there more than one piece that was there, done for that? There was yeah, there was the front back cover, front. painting, and the back was like a, an ink and, and yeah. I did, 
smashed my head into one of your family photos <laughs> on the wall when I was at your house. That's a whole other story. That's a whole other story, yeah. We'll have to have Dan back on again to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. fine. Um, yeah. Well, before we uh, wrap it up, uh, Dan, uh, one of the things we do in our, in our show at the end of each episode, we always ask every artist or actor or whoever we have on the show is, what comic book that you would recommend to our audience this week? So now you can't say your own. Obviously, we want to, but we can't say <laughs> Obviously, your own. No, I know. I don't want, I don't, that's not fun. <laughs> so um, what would you recommend for this week? Oh, man. You know, I haven't been to a comic shop in a while because the last time I went to one, there were too many people walking around without masks on. It was yeah. super annoying. Super um, annoying. Or they let them in, huh? Yeah, that's like weird that they let them in. Well, um, yeah, that's why I don't go to that shop right now. I'm not going there. Uh, I'll wait till name this shop. Asks. Yeah, name that shop. Fuck them. <laughs> no, kidding. it's okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I, to to be honest, I think uh, you know. I mean, when you're in your own store, and they tell you they want you to wear masks, and people come into your shop and then decide to not wear them or take them off. Yeah, you can do what you can do, but then they're your customers and it's really hard. I mean, I walk into Walmart and see people with no mask walk right in and no one even says anything. Yeah. Why don't they say something? Yeah. You know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I mean, I, I, all I can do is just protect myself as much as I can. So I, but as far, <laughs> this is not answering your question. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's a it whole other episode. So <laughs> things up. Maybe there's a COVID comic this out there. Happens. Any Listen, comic book, any comic book you, you know, want. Now you know what happens when you get me on your show. You have what? to have you have to have more time. Well, don't blame me. That. You blame Mike. Next time we won't have this problem. <laughs> I blame my, I blame only myself. Um, as far as a comic book that I would recommend, uh, off the top of my head, I would recommend going back and finding the trade paperback collections of. Um, oh damn it! Now. Oh boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! Sorry, I'm just completely drawing a blank. No, you're okay. You're okay. Damn it. It's Tom Coker's book with, uh, oh, you know what? I'll tell you what you should read. What's up? A great comic that I discovered when they hired me to do some covers for it, and I'd never heard of it before. It's called Mind Management. Okay. And it's this twisty kind of psychological espionage thing that's just completely crazy okay. by Matt Kent. He writes it. He does the art. Um, it is very much not mainstream, but you can tell there's a love of, of so many different things in, in this work um, that are they come from comics, but also films and other things like that. But my management is really cool. I did the variant covers for the second, uh, the second series, but go back and find um, actually it's not even the second series. I guess it's the newest series. I think there's three volumes of uh, collected stuff now. Awesome. Awesome. Three thick volumes of comics and they're great. It's about this sort of secret history of uh, people who kind of um, have um, psychic powers. And, but it's, it plays completely against um, what you might expect that to be. I have a copy. Here's my copies right here. This is what the, uh, oh, the trades okay. look like. They look like workbooks. Oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. The Mind Management Answer Report, three of three. Cognizance operatives and their invisible influence, including important details regarding your past involvement so it's about how uh events can happen in history and they can be erased from our mind um it's about how we they, uh, the secret society and and groups that are planting ideas in our heads that we don't know about um it's fascinating wow and i highly recommend it 
That um, sounds like probably the best recommendation we've had so far on this show. So thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. You're uh, welcome. Also, uh, um, Manor Black by Cullen Bunn and Tyler Crook is great. Even though, you know, I, uh, yes, I did a, a, you know, I did a, I think one or two covers for that. Maybe just, I think I've done two covers for that book, but I, I'm only saying because I did the covers, I read it and I was like, this is cool. So this is good stuff too. Um, Colin is a friend of mine, but I, I love the stuff he does. Um, he did dark arc is a really fun comic. If you like monsters and, and Noah's Ark stories, <laughs> awesome <laughs> and demons and, and vampires and, and, you know, manticores. So yeah, I, that, that's, a, that, that's kind of, that goes back like, you know, to last year. Um, but I think there's plenty to be said for the trade paperback. Um, that's a, that's a shelves at your local comic shop. Awesome. So. Mike, do you have anything last, any last words you want to say? Well, I just want to say, Dan, thanks. I feel like we got to have you on again at some point so we can talk some more because I feel yeah, like there's so two. much more I want to cover with you. Like there's definitely gonna be a part two, uh, more, we can, more of your processing. During, uh, if yeah, we can, if we can do a part two in, in November, that'd be great. If you're down for that, yeah, sure. Maybe after the X Men book comes out, after Marvel number two comes, I call it the X Men book, but it's not an X Men book. It's an <laughs> anthology. For sure, I yeah, share yeah. my issue. I share an issue with Alex Ross, um, Paolo Rivera, and uh, Eric Powell, which means hmm. I am definitely low man on the totem pole. But I'm wow. still looking forward to wow. seeing. So hey, it'll be out sometime in the high man of the total pole. <laughs> well, you don't have to say that. It's totally fine. <laughs> no, it's um, <laughs> like I said, I am okay with all that. You know, That's good. That's good. I'm okay with all that. You're an evolved human, Dan. Yeah, I love it. I I'm love trying it. to be. Yes. We, will, we will continue this in November. Uh, thank you so much, Dan. We really appreciate you being here. Uh, thank you for the recommendation. And to everybody listening, thank you guys for listening. And this is Thank the, you, guys. Yeah, this is the original format. This is how we started the show, and we haven't done it like this in a long time. This is Mike's first time actually co-hosting, so thank you. And mm-hmm. uh, I cannot wait for this to continue to grow with Mike. So, again, thank you so much, uh, Dan. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, thank you to everyone listening. Uh, before I do say one last thing, uh, Dan... Uh, do you want to give your Instagram or anything like that right now? Yeah, it's it's Dan Brereton Illustrator on Instagram, and um, I have a lot of Facebook pages, public pages. Noct- Dan Brereton Nocturnals, Dan Brereton. So you can you can just throw a rock and you'll hit a Dan Brereton page on Facebook. <laughs> that sounds and amazing. Twitter and check out check out the Children of Night Kickstarter. If you guys are interested, if anyone's interested in finding any of my books, um, most of what I have that's that's uh, available is on BudsArtBooks.com. Awesome. They have really great prices on Nocturnal's books, and I—that's just the, the, the plain facts. And uh, anything you can't find there, you can try uh, BigWowArt.com and uh, see what you can find. That sounds amazing. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, uh, Mike. Thank you, uh, Dan. Thank, thank you, you, everybody. Love each other. Take care of each other, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>